You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. And uh, I want to start off just with a question. What do you think people think of when they hear about Hill City or when they see one of the bumper stickers? Anyone have a bumper sticker? Hill City bumper sticker. We have bumper stickers. We're not in the business of bumper stickers necessarily. We have t-shirts. We're not in the t-shirt business. We have those things as uh, really tools that hopefully will help spark conversations about Jesus, about the gospel, about church in general, not necessarily to make the name of Hill City great. And yet, sometimes I see you out there with your bumper sticker on the road or at a grocery store, and I'm like, oh, that's someone, I, I, I probably know that person, right? Just think for a moment, though, what do you think other people think of when they see a Hill City bumper sticker? Good? Bad? Maybe nothing at all. I uh, read a book years ago uh, by a church consultant, and he had a practice. Whenever he would go into a new city, before he would meet with the church leaders, he would try to find some of the closest business establishments, whether it was a restaurant or a grocery store or a gas station, and he would go in, and he would just kind of, kind of play dumb. He'd be like, hey, I'm looking for a new church to go to. I'm new to town. Any recommendations? And he would just see what the the people would say. You know, sometimes the person behind the counter would say, I I don't know, like, did you Google it? But then he would say, well, I, I saw a sign for a church not far from here. What can you tell me about that church? And he said, every time it would be revealing. Often, the person said, you know what? I've seen that church. I drive by it every day but I can't tell you a single thing about it. What does that tell you about a church? It doesn't have a very strong presence in the community. Sometimes the person behind the counter would say something negative. Oh, you don't want to go to that church. Let me tell you, right? And they'd have maybe even stories of they just take up all the parking spots or they're terrible drivers or whatever. But every once in a while, there would be someone who would be positively impacted by that church and their presence in the community. I wonder what people would say about us. I came across a Barna study conducted in South Florida. I recognize that Idaho is not Florida. And yet, I found that these statistics to be a little bit revealing about the perception of church in general in our nation. When asked if people trust Christian pastors, 85% of Christians said yes that they trusted their pastor, and 48% of non-Christians. And this should be revealing. This has changed over the last 10, 20, 30 years, where you can even watch media or TV shows or movies from a couple decades ago, and a church leader or a pastor would be almost a caricature of a trustworthy person. And that's changed. We're now about every other person that you meet in this world has some sort of negative feeling when they find out what I do for a living. The second one was a bit more telling for me. When asked if they have a positive view of church, 
80% of Christians answered yes, and only 21% of non-Christians. One in five people in the world. In South Florida, okay, granted in South Florida, but I'm not so sure that the statistics would be much different here. Only one in five people in the world, when they see the word church, would say that's generally a good thing for society. Most other people have their own experience with church, have their own negative feelings and stories of church hurt, and would actually prefer for church buildings to be torn down and replaced with parking garages, because at least that's something useful. That's our reputation as Christians in culture. And like I said, this has drastically shifted over the last few decades. So what are we going to do about it? More bumper stickers, a PR campaign, better marketing, online arguments. What are we going to do about it? We must go back to Jesus' words from Matthew 5, 14 through 15. This is where we get our name, Hill City Church. Jesus says these words. It's a calling on you and me. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. This is how we fix this problem of a negative reputation of Christianity in the world. We must actually be the light of the world. Yet too often, when the world looks at Christianity or looks at a church community, they see a mirror image of the darkness that they're experiencing in the rest of culture. When people look at the church, they should see the light of God. And the light of God that Jesus is talking about here is specifically the word righteousness. They should see the righteousness of Christ shining out in our community. No longer can we afford to hide that under a basket. And so that's really what we're talking about today. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can open 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be moving all the way into 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is the last chapter of 1 Timothy. Can we celebrate that? You've almost done it. You've almost made it to the end. We've been studying through this book all summer. And to be honest, the passage we're going through today is a bit eclectic. There's a bit of seemingly unrelated topics that Paul gets to as he approaches near the end of his letter. Have you, and you do that probably too, right? When you're on the phone with someone or if you're on an email and you have the main things you want to tell them and then you realize you're running out of room or you're, you're going long on time, what do you start doing? Oh, and there's this and then there's this and then there's this. And you want to make sure you get some of the important bullet points out there. And that's really what we're going to see today. But really what unites these three seemingly unrelated topics is this idea of living a life that's above reproach. Having a positive reputation, not just with one another, but having a positive reputation in the world. That's what Jesus means when he talks about being the light of the world. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our passage. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll be jumping into verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, no longer drinking only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, cannot, uh, are not cannot remain hidden. So here's the first topic. If you remember from last week, we looked at church leadership and how we should deal with church leaders who do a good job, and also how to deal with church leaders who are caught in sin and must be removed. And this leads us right into this first verse, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. So topic number one that Paul's going to write to Timothy about is how you should go about appointing new leaders. And the way that Paul says you should go about appointing new leaders is slowly. Is slowly. Now, this is the opposite of our gut reaction. Because we all know that even if somebody's a bad leader or a corrupt leader, that as soon as you remove that person, there's now less people doing the work of ministry. And this is an age-old problem. This is nothing new, that there's always, always, always been more work to be done than there are workers to do the work. Does that make sense? Jesus had said it himself. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So there's always going to be this gap where we need to be raising up new leaders and appointing new leaders. But what Paul cautions Timothy about is he, he knows that there's going to be this reaction. Okay, you've done the hard work of church discipline, of removing a, a leader from office, and now you're feeling the pressure. You've got to do all the visits. You've got to answer all the emails. You've got to preach all the sermons. You, now you're feeling the pressure. And so what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to appoint the very first person that you meet who could possibly do the job. And what Paul's going to say is say, don't do that. We should appoint new leaders slowly with discernment. It's very, very important. Although it's tempting to rush appointing new people for roles in ministry, we must not rush it. Here's the point. It's better to appoint no one than to appoint the wrong one. If you are a manager, or you're a boss, or you're a business owner, you should write this down. This is, re- this is like good hiring practices as well for, your, for whatever context that you're in. Because what might happen is you, you remove someone who's doing a poor job or they're, they're, they're corrupt, their character is corrupt or the, you know, they've harmed the ministry or your company or whatever, and you remove them, and you find someone who might be able to replace them. They might be able to do the job, but what you find out all too quickly is that person might be just as bad, if not worse. And it would have been better for you to actually suffer a little bit through a short-staffed season and take your time in really evaluating and discerning who should be appointed next than to simply appoint anybody to the job. And this is especially important in the context of 1 Timothy, where Paul is talking to Timothy about appointing the elders of the church. I want to show you a picture. This is the last elder that we appointed. Uh, Anyone recognize that guy? It's Jim. He doesn't just do the announcements. He's he's an elder here at our church. And this is what Paul's talking about when he's talking about do not be hasty in laying on hands. This is what he's talking about. Some kind of commissioning or appointing kind of ceremony. And so you have some of our elder team there. You have the rest of the congregation reaching out hands, appointing him to the task. Here's the thing about Jim. Jim has been going to this church for about eight years. 
Before Hill City Church was called Hill City Church, he was at the former congregation that Hill City Church was planted out of. Not only has Jim been around a while, almost a decade, but we brought Jim through a process that lasted about six months. He had to read a book. He had to take a theology quiz. I met, we met with Jim. There was interviews. There was references similar to a job interview. We met with his wife and talked to her, right? So there's all these sort of steps. And I can honestly tell you that the process to becoming an elder at Hill City Church is not a hasty process. I, I can tell you with all integrity, it is the most in-depth process out of any other position at Hill City Church, more in-depth than any other job that we hire for, and I, I can say this, rightfully so. Too often you have the opposite in churches, and I'm just going to say, I, I know this is the case in many churches, that it's actually more, more difficult to get hired on to be a janitor at a church than it is to be an elder, quite frankly. Where the only parameter somebody uses is, has that person been around a while? Or is that person a large donor? Does that person seem like a nice guy? We cannot afford to appoint the church leaders on any of those bases. We must actually assess and evaluate the First Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7 characteristics of a human being. Does that make sense? And that's a slow process. And... The nice thing is, with Jim, there was really nothing that was a surprise to us because he's been around a while. But you can't take any chances with this kind of thing. Here's the point. True character is revealed in time. It's revealed in time. Again, this is a principle that is it's very important in appointing church leadership. It's, impor it's important for hiring practices. It's important for figuring out if you want to date someone or marry someone. Because you can actually, all of us, can get by for a little while under pretense, under uh, some kind of charade, wearing a mask, pretending to be someone that we're not. But you can't get by forever like that. You can't conceal the true nature of your character, of what's inside forever. And so if you're wondering about someone, if you're trying to discern someone's character, just give it time. And there's no substitute for time. If you're trying to evaluate someone's character, just wait. But the same principle is true not just for those of us who are trying to evaluate someone else's character. It's also true about who? About ourselves. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, The sins of some, they're not yet apparent. They're not these overt sins that everyone can see and be like, oh, wow, you know, watch out for that person. They're actually hidden. They're secret. They're following behind that person in the same way that someone's righteousness often can be, right? Where it's just, they're not just, you know, going on the street corners or taking selfies when they're doing good things. And so just give those things time as well. And I just want to pause for a moment and just, just ask all of, all of us, is there anything secret or hidden in your life the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify you from? Wants to cleanse you of? Wants to remove from your life? Because one day, all of us will stand before the righteous judge, and every single deed, every single word, every single thought will be revealed in, on that day. And I just, I just want to warn you. Wouldn't it be better to bring those things before the light of the gospel today 
than to allow those things to kind of follow us around, haunt us, keep, for us to try to keep those things concealed as we live our lives. Another thing this makes me think of, this idea of true character being revealed in time, is this idea of commissioning. It's not just something for elders. It's something that we do for other roles in ministry as well. And one role we've specifically been waiting on for a while is a church planter. Do you know that? Since day one of Hill City Church, it's been a a big part of of my heart and our heart uh, as a church that we want to plant churches hopefully many churches. But one of the things I would say at this, at, in this season where we are now is we, we've got a lot of people. I think in the future we're going to have a really, you know, financial health, the ability to send money and financially support a church. We've got a fairly positive culture. We've got a surplus of people, you know, of leaders that we can send and all this sort of thing. The one missing piece that we're waiting on is a planter. And it's not for lack of trying. I've had many conversations with over a dozen different individuals and their spouses and praying and discerning, and it's never quite worked out. This is something that God is teaching me a lesson on. Do not be hasty in laying hands on someone. But this is something that I would just invite you to pray for. I can imagine a day, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, where up here on stage we have a couple and we're laying hands on them, and we're, we're commissioning them, and we're sending them to go into the Treasure Valley to plant another church and to reach more people with the gospel. And would you, would you join me in praying for that day? Would you? It's not a rhetorical question. Would you? Yes, yes good. Because the reality is, it's, it's maybe the last piece of that puzzle that we're waiting on. We're waiting for God to reveal who that person, what that planting team looks like. But at the same time, it's such a vital decision. It's such a vital thing that we cannot afford to get that wrong. We want to make sure that whoever we send, that God is with them and he's calling them and that they are in a healthy place to lead. So that's really the first topic that Paul addresses with Timothy, is how do you go about appointing new ministry leaders? The second topic, though, has to do with personal purity, and the case study for this is drinking wine. Now, for some of you, you're like, do not, you know, do not only drink water, but drink wine. You're going to get a tattoo of that after church today. <laughs> you're like, that's my kind of Bible verse. And uh, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about alcohol in church. It's one of the, the topics here. Um, the reality is there's, there are many reasons why a Christian should not drink alcohol. There's many reasons for that. If you yourself struggle with drunkenness, that's a reason. If you have a history of substance abuse in your family, that's a reason. If you're in close proximity or relationship with someone else who fits those categories and you don't want to cause a brother or sister to stumble, That's a good reason to refrain from drinking alcohol. If you have physical ailments, if your doctor says don't drink alcohol, guess what? Don't drink drink it. (laughs) Listen to your doctor. And even emotionally, like it can become something that that you're, you're dependent on. Like if you have mental health struggles and you're using it as a coping mechanism, don't drink alcohol. Does that make sense? But here's one illegitimate reason to refrain from drinking alcohol. And that's the belief that Alcohol, in and of itself, even a single drop of it, is inherently evil. That's not a reason to refrain from drinking alcohol. I'll tell you a story. When I was 12 years old is when I had my first drink. (laughs) 
not, it's not as bad as you think. Uh, I was 12 years old, and my family was visiting an Anglican church, and it was totally different. There's many things about the service, right? We're, we're, I didn't grow up in an Anglican church. We're not an Anglican church, and it was an Anglican church in Australia, so I'm not sure how, you know, much of that translates or how, how similar it is, depending on where you are in the world, but I was there. Because that was the church my grandpa was attending. And so we, we went to church with my grandpa. And then they said, hey, it's time for the Lord's Supper. Let's get all the kids up front. And it was one of those things where they had one chalice, like a single chalice. And they had the bread up there. And it was like, you know, let's have the kids start. And they all actually like drank out of it. It wasn't like rip and dip. It was like chug. And so, <laughs> and I was the first one, I was the first one up there. And I was like, this is great. I, we usually have these tiny little things, you know? And I go to the front and I'm thinking, this is just going to be delicious grape juice. And I take one giant swig of this and it's wine. <laughs> and I'm like, eh! You know, I probably like made some kind of like facial expression, and I, did, I was like, yeah, something's off with that, and I had the bread, and I went back, and I was just like, what was the deal? So after church, I told my, my parents, I was like, something was wrong with the grape juice, and they're like, oh, that's not grape juice, that was wine, and me as a 12-year-old, and I'm kind of like, I'm like, uh, you know, I, I want to be doing the right thing, like a high moral value standards and stuff, I started, I'm like, I'm drunk now, and I'm like, I'm crying on the drive home, and I'm like, I go to church, and they trick me, they trick me into doing it, but that's because I had that belief, I had that belief that it's inherently, like, why are they sinning in church, why are they doing that? And, uh, and, and that's not a good reason. That's not a good reason to refrain. There, there are many other good reasons. I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and, and buy a bottle of wine after this. But here, here's what I will say. In Ephesus, they have a problem in their false teaching. And one aspect of that false teaching that we know is that the leaders had their own rules of righteousness. And one of those rules seems to be legalism surrounding what's permissible and what's prohibited when it comes to food and drink. Look at 1 Timothy 4.3. It's a passage that Jake preached a number of weeks ago. These false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods... We might say likely alcohol would be included in that. Require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, not water into grape juice. Gallons and gallons of wine at a wedding. Jesus, during the Lord's Supper, drank wine. And in fact, he said, I will not drink of this again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There will be wine in heaven. This is true, okay? So, so imagine this context where Timothy, a younger leader who has been given a substantial amount of authority to go in and to help remove elders and appoint new ones, like he's been given a substantial amount of authority, and yet he's being criticized by false leaders who have their own self-righteous behaviors, they have their own legalism, their own set of rules. And he, Paul's like, okay, in First Timothy, he, he wants him to use wine, a little bit of wine for medicinal purposes, which is very common practice in the ancient world. And he says a little bit, so he's not saying like, you have full permission to get drunk, because drunkenness, very clearly, cover to cover scripture, it's a sin. But do you see why Paul would throw this line in there if Timothy's like, well, I, like, I, my stomach, I actually kind of need to drink a little bit of wine, but I don't want other people to perceive it the wrong way. 
That's why Paul is writing to Timothy, because this letter would have been read in front of the entire congregation, so that no one's pointing fingers at Timothy for drinking wine. Does that make sense? And so what Paul is doing here is he's tearing down what is probably a common belief within the church that alcohol in and of itself is evil or wrong. A a telltale sign of spiritual immaturity is a fascination with the external appearance of righteousness. I'll say that again because it's very, very important. A telltale sign of spirit, because this masquerades as spiritual maturity, spiritual elitism, right? A telltale sign of spiritual immaturity is a fascination with the external appearances of righteousness while simultaneously neglecting true transformative righteousness by the renewing of your mind and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me translate that for you. You just care about people looking the part, but you don't care about people actually becoming more like Christ. This is very common with the religious leaders that Jesus interacted with. In Matthew 23, 23 through 24, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So they're tithing even on the spices that they're purchasing from the grocery store. Got to give this segment of my cumin to the church. But they're neglecting the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Have you ever heard that line, all sin is the same? It's not actually true. Not all righteousness is the same either. And so they're, they're, they're actually following these, these external appearances of righteousness, but they're totally neglecting the most important things. He says this, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So he's not saying choose one or the other. He's saying, start with the most important things. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, this is absurd, right? Someone's like, oh, I got a fly in my soup, and they're straining it out. And they're like, oh, that's a camel in my soup? Yeah, bring it over. It's absurd. It's it's like Jesus is, he's roasting these guys. And uh, this this is the reality, though. It's selective obedience. This is just as much a temptation for you and I today, by the way. Selective obedience of God's law. The law of the Lord is not a buffet where you can show up and fill your plate with the things that you like and the laws and the rules that you agree with and the commandments that you want to follow, and you can totally neglect some of the other ones that, dis- that are disagreeable because they don't sit well with your stomach. It's not a buffet. The law of the Lord is God's righteousness that he calls us to follow. And so I, I think about, you know, kids at a buffet line, and they just, you, you look at the plate that they've loaded up, and you're like, how did you put soft-serve ice cream on your whole plate? <laughs> That's not, that was at a different counter. Like, you went, you somehow, there's just sprinkles of soft-serve ice cream. But for some of us, it's this idea, selective obedience, is we're following just the rules or just the laws that we want to, but then there's these weightier matters. The meat, I can say it like this, the meat and potatoes of our faith. We've got to start with those things. We've got to follow the law of the Lord. Look at what, what it says in Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, humility, 
mercy. These are the things that we must focus on as the people of God. And as we focus on the weightier matters of the law, as we focus on loving the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we focus on loving your neighbor as yourself, it's not that we'll never get to those other things, but those other things should follow. But I can tell you this, if you focus on the external appearances of righteousness, it's quite possible that you will never get to the weightier matters of the law. Because you'll look in the mirror and you'll feel self-justified about how good and how righteous you look. And the goal of sanctification is spiritual transformation that begins on the inside and works its way out to the rest of our lives. So that's really what Paul is saying about alcohol. Yes, he's, he, specifically, he's got something to say to Timothy, but really what he's calling out is he's calling out this legalism, this self-righteous attitude within the midst of the people. Continuing through the text, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke uh, as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they serve all the better since they benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now here we get to the third topic, which is this idea of slaves and masters. And whenever you read about slavery in the Bible, there should be this natural kind of reaction to it, which asks the question, why doesn't the Bible just say abolish slavery? If, you know, when we read Paul, and he talks about slavery quite a bit in most of his letters, that's because around 30% of the Roman Empire was in slavery, okay? So this is a substantial day-to-day societal issue that is going on. And whenever Paul addresses slavery, almost every single time, he tells slaves to obey their masters. And today, in our modern interpretive lens, we just have this kind of emotional reaction like, what's up with that? What's up with that? Uh, Well, let me address that for just a moment before we dive into what Paul's saying here. Clinton Arnold, New Testament scholar, says this. When we read Paul's letters, we find that he never gives a theological basis for slavery. That's an important distinction. Okay, the Bible doesn't abolish slavery, but the Bible also doesn't defend slavery as an institution. He assumes its presence in society and helps believers understand what it means to live as a Christian within this socioeconomic institution. Okay, so a few things on this. The Bible doesn't defend slavery because slavery is an institution not created by God, but created by man. Does that make sense? So an an example of an institution created by God is marriage. Okay? So it's given by God, so it's God-given, it must be God-governed, God, you know, so the Bible teaches us about uh, marriage, but slavery is, it's just a reality in the ancient world. Also, when you think about slavery, especially modern slavery, it actually was theological truths that provided the basis for the emancipation of slaves and abolished work that happened with slavery. You look at almost every single one of the early abolitionists in Britain and in America, guess what? They're Christians, okay? So just because the Bible, slavery is in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible endorses slavery. And in fact, you see the opposite where uh, the theological truths provided the grounds for the abolition of slavery. Also, it's worth noting that slavery still exists today in the form of human trafficking. 
In fact, there's more slaves today than there ever have been on planet Earth. And it is Christians, once again, who are on the cutting lines. They're on the front lines. I personally know a pastor who travels overseas to bust brothels and get children out of human trafficking, okay? And you look at movies like The Sound of Freedom, and you look at funds given, and it truly is the church. So sometimes people can read this and the fact that there's slavery in Scripture and almost use that as a reason, you know, well, that's because this archaic book, and, you know, I don't, that's why I don't want to have anything to do with the church. Well, guess what? It's the church. It's God's people who are the ones who are actually doing the work to, abol- to still abolish slavery to this day. Amen? Amen? Amen. Rightfully so. Okay. So we don't want to get this wrong. One, another thing that can help us is that slavery in the first century is drastically different than the slavery that we saw in America. It was a, it, in the first century, it's a socioeconomic reality, not a racial reality. And oftentimes, even the conditions are much better than you would expect. People generally sold themselves into slavery because it was either they could go into a household and have meals and housing provided for and have work and actually get paid a wage and be educated and eventually buy themselves out of slavery rather than live on the street. That's, primar- that's primarily, it was either through war or through, through economic difficult times that someone ended up being slaves. And in the first century, it's very, very common for slaves to actually be granted their freedom, buy their freedom, all that sort of stuff. So it would be, so that's why this, this word, which the Greek word is doulos, could be translated as slave or as it's translated in our passage, bond servant. Bond servant. That might be a more helpful way to think about Christian servants and their employers when we come into interpreting this for today. Is that helpful? Okay. With that, let's actually find out what Paul is saying. If you imagine about 30% of the Roman Empire was in slavery, you can imagine that about 30% of the church or more would have been slaves as well. And so this is very relevant instructions to the church in Ephesus. And you have two different issues. The first issue is it seems like you have Christian slaves who have unbelieving masters, and they're not willing to obey their masters because they're not believers. They're like, well, that person, ha- you know, that person is not a good guy, or they, they don't have my same worldview, and so I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to believe them. Here's the reality. Here's the point. Slaves who do that they actually are bringing dishonor to the gospel. Disrespectful Christians dishonor the gospel. This idea of respect, and I know we have this kind of modern movement in culture uh, that disrespects authority, and dis, you know, but the reality is the this, this same principle is true today. Disrespectful Christians dishonor the gospel. Paul says that if you go into your workplace and you start dishonoring or shaming your employer, your boss, your manager, what's going to happen is that's going to create a reputation where people aren't going to see the church as the light of the world. They're going to revile the teaching of the gospel. They're gonna, they're gonna, it's going to bring dishonor. It's going to bring shame on the community. And so you must respect those who are in authority over us, even if we don't agree with them. Does this happen in other places as well? Does this happen in the realm of, I don't know, politics? (laughs) Or your child's academic institution? 
Does this happen in your workplace? This is huge. We have to get this right. Everyone's all about, yes, light of the world. City on a hill. Let's show the world the gospel. You need to stop gossiping about your boss. That's what it looks like. Tangibly speaking, it means you need to treat that person who maybe has mistreated you or been unkind to you. You need to treat that person with compassion and kindness and honor and respect anyways. And in that way, we create this subversive counterculture of love that begins to influence the world that we live in from the inside out. That's the way of Jesus. See, God is not creating a community of rebels who are going to overthrow the system. God is creating a community filled with ambassadors of reconciliation who go into the world and and we actually gain a right to speak truth with people through our actions, through our works, through our love. And the second situation that Paul is addressing here is you have some Christians who have unbelieving uh, unbelieving masters. He's like, well, you better treat them well because they might actually be won over to the gospel by how you work for them and how you serve them. But then you have this other situation where you have Christian servants and Christian masters. And it almost seems like that group is, is using Paul's own teachings in Galatians against him. Like, well, I don't have to listen to that person. We're brothers in Christ, right? We're both Christians, so doesn't that mean that we're on equal footing now and I don't actually work for that person anymore? Because didn't Paul say in Galatians 3.28, there, there is no longer slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that right? So I don't work for you anymore. And the boss is like, well, you still work for me though, right? I mean, read this, Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He just said, don't submit to slavery. So is this Paul contradicting himself? What does this mean? It's so easy to misinterpret Scripture when you only read one verse. Did you know that? It's really, really important that we seek to humble ourselves before Scripture, rightfully understand it before we live out of it. The yoke of slavery that Paul's referring to in Galatians 5.1 is unquestionably the yoke of the old covenant and abiding by rules that are no longer applied to us in the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Just read it. Fact check me later. Read Galatians chapter 5, okay? And just read a few verses later in Galatians 5 verse 13. What does Paul say to do with our freedom? For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh, but through love, what? Serve one another. Okay, your brothers in Christ. That's great. He's still your boss. Serve him. What Paul is doing in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is he's taking likely the slogan of these rebellious Christian servants. He's my brother. I don't have to serve him. I don't have to listen. I don't have to honor anymore. And he flips it back around on him. He's your brother. Great. You should serve him better. Because you're not just serving your boss. You're also serving your brother in Christ. Two for one. So you should actually serve better. Here's the truth for us in our lives. Christians should be the best employees. Do you know that? Our faith in Jesus influences every aspect of our lives. Following Jesus, Christianity, it's not like one slice of the pie. It's the whole pie, okay? Every aspect of your life. Think about how many hours you will spend doing work. So following Jesus should influence your work ethic. 
It should influence the way that you work. Every day, Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, your faith in Jesus should influence the way that you work for someone else. And the way that you work can either point people to Jesus or can be another reason, another bumper sticker of someone who cut them off in traffic. I'll never go to Hill City Church. You should drive well if you have a bumper sticker, (laughs) by the way. That should be a disclaimer on the back of those. We have more stickers in our resource area today. But Christians should be the best employees. And I've seen it work. I've seen it. Being a light in the workplace. Don't overlook that. Don't undervalue that. That you're an ambassador of reconciliation in your job, wherever you're at. At the same time, Christians should also be the the best bosses. Do you know that? If you've been entrusted, there's other passages you can read in, 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 in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he not only talks about slaves obeying the masters, listening to them, showing respect, he also calls out the masters. Christian, you know, if you're a boss, if you're an employer, you should be, make, it, make this your goal, that for every single one of your employees, when someone asks them the question, who's your, who's your favorite boss that you've ever worked for? Would you just pray that it would be you, that you would be the one that, that comes to mind? Not because you're conceited and you want to be everyone's favorite person, but because you have the light of Christ in you. You don't lead with threats. You don't lead with fear as a motivation. You, you lead with grace and gentleness, and you serve the people that God has entrusted to you. Because all of us will answer to Christ Jesus for how we live and how we work. And we've kind of started off with this question of what do people think of when they think of Hill City Church? And I recognize that in some ways, the church is fighting an uphill battle in culture. And we can't control the reputation of Christians in South Florida. We can't control the reputation of Christians all over this valley. But here's what we can control. We can control what people think of this church community, amen? And often we kind of look through the, the situation we're in a little bit negatively or with cynicism. And I just want to pause and ask this question. What if we get this right? Think about that for a moment. What if we get this right? What if we live above reproach? What if people look at our lives and it's attractive because we're demonstrating and embodying the fruit of the Spirit in our midst? Let's look at the rest of what Jesus has to say in Matthew 5, verse 16. Jesus is answering the question, what if you get this right? He says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is what happens if we get this right. Good works open the door for the good news of the gospel. Hopefully before someone ever hears the truth of the gospel from our lips, they experience the love of Christ through our actions, through our works, through our righteousness, through our lives, through being above reproach. And I can just tell you, I want to encourage you for just a moment, I actually do hear it all the time, almost on a weekly basis, where someone who's never been to our church they ask me what I do for a living, or they ask, you know, about, you know, about the church, and they hear me say the, the line, oh, Hill City Church. And you know what I hear, honestly, most of the time? I've heard about you guys. I've heard about you guys. It seems like, yeah, it seems like God is doing amazing things through your church. It seems like you've got some really good people down there, right? 
seems like God's moving in the north end. It seems like God's moving downtown. That's the goal. That's the goal. I'm already, so again, I'm not speak, preaching any of this with criticism or judgment, but to spur us on. Don't you want to hear more of that? Don't you want to hear more stories of that? Don't you want to see people look at that Hill City bumper sticker and they're like, I'm going to follow that person in traffic. <laughs> Amen. That's going to be good. Because when we live out our faith in the neighborhood, people come to Jesus. So would you do that? Would you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and let the light of Christ shine? Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.